0: Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, or excuse me, birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created a male and female, he created them. And God blessed them And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the ground. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for our time of worship so far, and Father, I pray that we would continue to worship as we now look at your word. Father God, we thank you for being a God who has spoken and who continues to speak through that word. This word is not dead, it is alive, it continues to have power, it continues to transform. And so we pray, O Lord, do a transforming work in us this morning. This I pray, amen. This morning as we turn ourselves to God's word, I think we need to start by considering Charlottesville, Virginia. Charlottesville has long been known as a lovely small city nestled in the Virginian countryside just outside of Shenandoah National Park. The city is home to both the University of Virginia which was founded by none other than Thomas Jefferson himself and Monticello which is Jefferson's famed plantation house. But now Charlottesville has become famous or maybe infamous is better for a whole different reason. Interestingly, however, it's still tied very closely with Thomas Jefferson in a way. Over the course of the past weeks, our nation has been embroiled in an existential crisis because of the violence and hatred that has been on display in Charlottesville as well as several other places. Our nation has been wrestling with matters of racism and freedom, supremacy and nationalism, all coming down to this question of equality. Do we truly believe, as a nation, in the genuine equality of all people? The second line of the Declaration of Independence reads, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet, Thomas Jefferson, who the very author of these extraordinary words owned slaves. What's more, 12 U.S. presidents have owned slaves, eight of whom owned slaves while they were serving in the White House. These words describing the self-evident truth of the equality of all men were written while one quarter of the country's population was in chains for no other reason than they were not white. These words were penned when 700,000 were enslaved in our country. In one sense, we should not be surprised that this existential struggle then continues on to this day. After all, our nation was conceived in the midst of a paradox, proclaiming the freedom and equality of all men, yet tolerating the horrific injustice of slavery. And while I understand the political explanation that this paradox was necessary to maintain and preserve the union of the states and thus the burgeoning country, If you don't know, Virginia would have left had they outlawed slavery at the time of the signing of the Declaration and later the Constitution. So in one sense, you understand the political explanation, and yet it does not and cannot excuse the horror of the paradox. As a result of this original paradox, we've been wrestling with equality since 1776. We fought a civil war over it that claimed the lives of more than 620,000 soldiers. We have endured legalized discrimination, terror, and lynching campaigns. We have had both peaceful and violent civil rights movements, and yet we still have not settled it completely. We have had both, uh, excuse me, and maybe we never will, Maybe enduring racial tumult in the United States is the resulting consequence of our national sin of slavery. I don't know. Honestly, I do not know what lies ahead for our country in terms of equality and racial reconciliation, but this I do know. This I do know. Racism and Christianity are absolutely incompatible with one another. Hear that. And let me expand upon it just a bit. Racism, along with all of its kissing cousins, prejudice, bigotry, discrimination, a a sense of self-supremacy in any and all forms, are totally, completely, and absolutely incompatible with genuine biblical Christianity and Jesus Christ himself. Now some of you may be thinking, well, of course that's true, do we even need to talk about it? Obviously my answer is yes, we do. While none of us here this morning was marching amidst the KKK and the neo Nazis in Charlottesville a couple weekends ago, I'm right about that assumption, yes? If not, see Pastor Paul when he comes back. He'll have some words for you. While none of us was marching, the truth is, is such sentiments can still linger within us. They can linger within our minds and within our hearts, and we need to be honest about that reality. It's far too easy for us, all of us, to write off Charlottesville as ridiculous, as backwater ignorance, as crazy southern extremists holding on to the dead and buried dream of a resurrected South. And yet, right here in our own midst, we have such thoughts and feelings. Why? Because they're not extreme. They're sin. And sin can sneak into anyone's hearts anyone's mind at any turn and so this morning i simply want to walk us through a very short biblical summary of why racism prejudice and bigotry are absolutely incompatible with christianity and the first text is the one we read this morning genesis 1 26 and 27 often referred to as describing the doctrine of the imago dei or the image of god In this text, we see that each and every man, woman, and child on earth, past, present, and future, bears within themselves the image and likeness of God himself. Therefore, each and every man, woman, and child, every single life, born and unborn, is inestimably valuable. They have an inherent worth because they are God's workmanship, his masterpieces, his creation's. And though humanity's fall from grace has surely marred our ability to reflect God in his glory clearly, our value has not and does not diminish because it doesn't rest in us first and foremost. It rests in our creator. It rests in the one who created us. In and of itself, then, the Imago Dei should clearly and irrefutably teach us as to the worth of all peoples in the world regardless of race, color, ethnicity, or creed. The Imago Dei says racism is incompatible with Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, gives us the Abrahamic covenant. And it's a parallel, in a lot of ways, with Matthew 28, 16 through 20, which is the Great Commission. Right? Right? Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic Covenant communicate early on that God's plan is to be a blessing to the nations, all the nations of the world. Here's what it says in verse 2 of Genesis 12. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your, your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here when we're talking about nations and families of the earth, we're not talking the geopolitical nations. We're not talking, at that time, it would have been Israel and Egypt and Syria. Now we're not talking about the United States and Russia and Kazakhstan. We're talking peoples, tribes, tongues, nations, all peoples. That's what we see in the same thing in Matthew 28 in the Great, to, Great Commission, where Jesus sends us out, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, the term there in Greek is "pontata ethne. Ethne, ethnic, ethnicities, peoples, nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. If God's salvific plan of blessing is for all peoples and nations of the earth, why would we think that our people, our nation, is intrinsically better than any other? If God plans to bless the nations, why wouldn't we want to bless all the nations? Look at Psalm 67. Take a moment to turn there. This is one of those extraordinary psalms. And the mission of God is, is beautifully described here. The psalmist begins, he says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. And notice, that's a, that's a prayer there, if you will. May God be gracious to us. May he bless us. May he make his face to shine upon us. And then look at verse 2. So that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Bless us, O Lord, so that through us the nations will join in the worship of you. Bless us, make your face shine upon us so that everyone in the world will see your glory and join in the worship of your name. Again, God is a God of the nations. He is not just our God. He is their God. He is the God. And therefore, seeking to be like him, we should be a people among his peoples. We should join the nations in singing. Let's turn now to Matthew chapter 1. And as we turn our attention to the New Testament, it might seem strange at first glance that we're gonna, the first passage in the New Testament we're going to look at is the genealogy of Christ. And yet there's two things in this genealogy that are terribly important for us to see. First, and now this may come as a shock, but Jesus was not a white European man. Thank you. I know, it's shocking. It's shocking. Right? Jesus was an ethnic descendant of Abraham. He was Jewish. We are spiritual descendants of Abraham. But he was an ethnic descendant of Abraham. He would have had decidedly darker complexion than most of us sitting in this room. Brown skin, brown eyes, dark brown and black hair but how often do we see Jesus depicted in paintings and storybooks as being more closely resembling Dutch, German, or English? Then you get the really strange one where, Jer- where Jesus looks Nordic. He's got the blonde hair and the blue eyes, and you're thinking, who, who wrote this? Those are the kind of things you just set aside and recycle somewhere. That's the first thing we have to see, who Jesus truly was. Second, Jesus' Jewish ancestry was in and of itself mixed. Look at verses 5 and 6. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. In that genealogical record, there are two women mentioned. Rahab the Canaanite prostitute of Jericho, and Ruth, the Moabitess. If you read the story of Ruth, you will almost never see Ruth's name by itself. It was Ruth the foreigner or Ruth the Moabitess. They were making a point. They were making a point about who she was. So these protesters and these folks around our country who scream about racial purity and somehow link that to Christ they have no idea what they're saying and we must be ready to respond jesus himself was a man of the nations just as he would one day die for the people of the nations matthew chapter 22 verses 30 through 40 34 through 40 contain the greatest commandments as described by christ himself On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Scott Sauls, a PCA pastor in Nashville, said in a sermon two weeks ago, There cannot be true vertical love for and relationship with God without horizontal love for and relationship with our neighbors. In short, the two are inseparable. And I would add, without love for and relationship with our neighbors of color, how can there truly be love for god for the love of god and the love of neighbor are inextricable we cannot proclaim to love god and hate our neighbor it simply cannot be we do a good job of faking it but the reality is it cannot be john 3:16 and 17 do we really need to turn to this one right Do I have to explain to you here at Missio Day the extraordinary love of God and its application to the world? So great is His love that He sacrificed His own divine Son to save whoever would believe in Him. Think about that for a moment. The cost of our salvation as it comes from a love driven by the world. God's love for the world. Turn to Acts chapter 2. This is the story of Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2. And at this point, Peter has stood up, beginning in chapter 5, or verses 5. Peter is standing up, and he's going to preach this first Spirit-inspired sermon. And I want you to just... See the list of nations and peoples that were there for the first gospel proclamation in the church age. Beginning in verse 5. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. That's the sound of the Holy Spirit coming. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are these not... Are these who are speaking not Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Again, it seems silly because we're just reading through a list here. And yet again, it is God's word and it's extraordinary. And the reality is, is the gospel is for all peoples. And therefore, we must be for all peoples. Now the New Testament church was going to spend a lot of time wrestling through this reality. Peter himself struggled with this. It took a vision, a divine vision on a white sheet and Christ saying to him, get up, take and eat. Don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. And then seeing the Holy Spirit given to Cornelius after his conversion. They were going to wrestle with it. This was hard for them. And yet the reality is, is right here, at the moment of the coming of the Holy Spirit, God makes known that his gospel was for the nations, without exception. That's extraordinary stuff. All forms of racism, prejudice, and bigotry are absolutely incompatible with the genuine with genuine biblical Christianity and Christ himself. Therefore, we must strive to eradicate it in the church as a witness to the world. And the reason why this is so important, so particularly important in the church, is that for those of us who are in Christ, to whom faith has been given as a free gift of God's grace, we are now one people in Christ. We are, as it were, a new people. This is, after all, what Galatians chapter 3 tells us, is it not? For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promised. This text, of course, does not mean that there aren't still differences. There are differences. There are still men and there are still women. There are still different races, Jews and Greeks, black and white. But it means that in Christ, those things are covered over by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ and the salvation of Christ and the communion of Christ that we share and we're about to share transcends those things. And therefore the church should be a witness to the world of these things. But often we fail to do so. Jesus Christ in his blood and his salvation transcends the differences to unite us together now and in eternity We are one, let us be one, let us treat each other as one, let us love each other as one. That is our calling as the church, that is the witness we must show to the world. One of the greatest sources of racism, bigotry and prejudice and the like is our refusal to obey Paul's command in the extraordinary text of Philippians chapter 2. Verse 3, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. All forms of racism and prejudice rest upon this reality. We believe ourselves to be superior. Whether it's because I'm white and you are not, maybe it's because I'm Italian and you're not. That one could be real. Because I'm middle class, and you're not. Because I'm educated, and you're not. Because I am fill in the blank, and you're not. Anything I can find to make myself seem above you, I will find. Leah Heisinga, what was the old Dutch saying? <laughs> if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. They said it with a joke on their face, but there was some reality and truth to it. It's one of the plagues of the Dutch Reformed Church in America and beyond. If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. I squeaked in being half Dutch. That gave me a dispensation. But the reality is, is that our tendency, our fallen nature seeks to buoy ourselves up seeks to lift ourselves up to make ourselves feel better, to think we are better by putting others down. And so because we do not heed God's word and this command, in humility count, your other, count, your, count others more significant than yourselves, we give root to all forms of racism, bigotry, and supremacy. But what's so stunning is that we ignore this command in light of the illustration that follows. Because now Paul leads us into what's called the kenosis of Christ. And that means the emptying of Christ. Because this is what it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's the kenosis or the emptying. Christ willingly sets aside the fullness of His glory or taking advantage of it or using it in what He was about to do, which is the incarnation. He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. (laughs) We can't even fathom the depths of what we're talking about at this point. For the fully divine Son of God to take on the full form of humanity, emptying himself, still divine, still possessing all of his divine attributes, and yet somehow setting them aside, somehow putting them off to the side and not using them while he's in the full form of humanity. And so fully God and fully man. And yet this is Christ. This is the one we follow. This is where our our label comes from. We are Christians. We are little Christs. And yet... We think ourselves better. So not only does he take on the form of a servant, take on the form of a man, and so the creator becomes the creature, as it were, he then willingly and sacrificially gave his life for ours. How dare we consider ourselves better than others? We are but miserable wretches whose sin demanded the death of God's Son. How dare we? But the good news, right, is that God's plan of salvation was successful. The blood of Jesus Christ covers it, covers that sin. And so as we bring ourselves to a close here, I I just want us to look at what is coming to give us the hope of what God's plan will ultimately do. And this comes from Revelation chapter 7. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, Friends, this is what heaven looks like. All tribes and tongues and nations worshiping God in His glory as the church of Jesus Christ. As Christians and followers of Christ, we must strive to give the world a glimpse of heaven now. This is our witness. I don't know what lies ahead for our nation, our country as we continue to struggle with hate and violence fueled by racism and the like I don't know what will become of the alt-left and the alt-right and the alt-center I don't know what politician will spout off what, whatever ridiculous nonsense comes next but what I do know is that racism and genuine biblical Christianity are absolutely incompatible with one another therefore we as the church we as Christians serve as a witness to the world as to what love and peace truly look like a love and peace that transcends race color culture and anything else that divides us let it be so here at missio day let it be so now let's pray